1: Hello, and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukye, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show. We speak to Jaron Lanier about why he thinks deleting our social media accounts is a good idea.
2: For the sake of society, at least see if you can be part of the island that is off it to just give us some perspective, some ability to have a conversation.
1: And how experts in animal behavior are applying their science to the operating theater.
3: So if we can figure out how animals react using clues from what has been studied about animals, that could tell us something about how to make surgery safer.
1: But first, the northern white rhinoceros is the world's most endangered mammal. And in March this year, the death of the last male rhino left only two females as the only living members of the species. There is hope, however. In a paper published in Nature, a team of scientists have revealed that they have created a viable hybrid embryo in vitro with genes from the almost extinct species and those of their closest relative. To understand what this could mean for the future of the northern white rhino, I'm joined on the phone from Cincinnati by Terry Roth, the Vice President of Conservation and Research of Endangered Wildlife at the Cincinnati Zoo. Hello, Terry. Hello. So first, let me ask you, how is it that we only have two living northern white rhinos?
4: Yeah, it's really a tragedy, isn't it, that we just have two left. But what's happened, it's kind of a two-pronged approach to kind of causing this um, species to decline in the way that it has. First. Poaching and civil unrest in northern Africa really decimated the population in the early 2000s. So we had a population of about 30 rhinos that the International Rhino Foundation was protecting. They were starting to increase in numbers, and we had a great deal of hope that we were saving the northern white rhino. But civil unrest just took care of all of that. And the rangers that were out protecting them, we had to pull them out of that region just to save their lives, and the rhinos were destroyed. The other effort that was ongoing was an effort to produce the species in a managed breeding program, and that was occurring both in the United States and the Czech Republic. But for whatever reason, there were a lot of complications, and the northern right rhino just simply failed to thrive and to breed naturally. And so we ended up with just a few individuals left, and they were sent to Kenya, and that is where the last remaining two females exist today.
1: But there is hope. So tell me about the research.
4: Yeah. So this, what this research has shown is that there's been commendable progress in developing assisted reproductive technologies for rhinos. And by producing these hybrid embryos, we may have the opportunity to save some of the genes of the northern white rhino so that we don't lose them forever.
1: How would that work?
4: Well, what the scientists have demonstrated is that they can use sperm from the northern white rhino to fertilize oocytes from the southern white rhino. And so these subspecies hybrid embryos will contain genetics from both subspecies. If we can produce viable offspring, then those offspring would have to be bred to each other until we dilute out the southern white rhino gene and kind of concentrate the northern white rhino genes and eventually have an animal that is very similar to the northern white rhino.
1: Is this the sort of thing that might have happened in nature anyway, or... Is the innovation here the fact that we can manage the population gene pool in this way?
4: Well, in in the wild, they actually would have been separate because the habitats are a great distance away from each other. So they wouldn't have hybridized due to the distance. But if you had brought a northern and southern white rhino together in the same habitat... They clearly could hybridize naturally. Um, They are just subspecies and not species, and therefore hybridization can take place pretty readily.
1: Terry, is this enough to save the species?
4: Um, In my mind, it is not enough, and I think it's a tragedy that we have allowed ourselves to get to the point where assisted reproductive technologies, this high-tech approach, is absolutely essential to even saving the genes of this subspecies. There is a lot more that needs to be done, and I think the concerted effort of boots on the ground, protecting rhinos from poachers, politicians passing laws, judges upholding those laws, all those things are so important to saving species from going extinct. But when you get into a situation where it's it's basically we're asking the, the triage unit to try and help us so that we don't lose the last of the northern white rhinos. And that's when the reproductive technologies can really make a difference.
1: Terry Roth, thank you very much. My pleasure. Next up, Jaron Lanier is a pioneer in virtual reality. He's a computer scientist and a musician, and he has written a new book in which he sets out arguments for deleting social media accounts. However, he also addresses how data is being used to manipulate user experience on social media platforms and why this can diminish free will and our capacity for empathy. The Economist's deputy editor, Tom Standage, spoke to him recently. Jaron, welcome to Babbage.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Now, your new book is called
0: 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. But underlying and unifying these 10 arguments is a single idea, what you call the bummer machine. So what is that?
2: Well, I just got tired of uh, explaining the thing I was uh, criticizing over and over again. I don't think social media per se is the problem. Many of the experiences people have on social media that are positive are entirely genuine and valuable. And, and must be preserved, what it is is it's a, a behind-the-scenes machine which is surveilling people and manipulating them with constant uh, feedback designed to addict and uh, adjust their behavior. So Bummer stands for Behavior of Users Modified and Made Available as an Empire for Rent.
0: What are some of the ways that this machine is manipulating us that, as social media users, maybe we're not aware of? I think people are aware of the surveillance, but what else is it
2: doing? Yeah, the surveillance by itself is annoying, and it presents perhaps security risks. But the thing that's really darkening the world, in my view, is the way that the data from the surveillance is being Used to adjust the experiences that people have on uh, digital media. So, what happens is the algorithms are making slight adjustments to what video you'll see next, what ad you'll see next, what post you'll see next, based on correlations of you with multitudes of other people who are deemed to be similar to you in some way or other and who have proven to be persuaded by similar changes to their feeds. And so, this constant honing in on what can be shown to you that will have some influence on you puts everybody under a behavior modification regime to a slight degree, a very slight degree, but it's it's universal and it's cumulative. So it has an effect on the world. And the effect is turning everybody into addicts so that there are these irritable, selfish patterns that come up again and again. It makes everybody kind of uh, cranky, paranoid. And it lays out this welcome mat for bad action who can come in and stuff the system with fake people and manipulative content, most famously by the Russian intelligence warfare units to uh, throw elections and uh, disrupt societies. So you make some quite big claims about
0: the extent to which this is messing with our minds, things like it's causing us to lose our free will and destroying our capacity for empathy. So what's the the evidence for that and how's that happening?
2: In the case of free will, what I'm referring to is the process of addiction. And I don't think I'm making any extraordinary claims in the book. In fact, unlike my previous books, this book is very much an argument built on accumulations of uh, already published research and uh, widely uh, acknowledged facts. and events. Uh, For instance, on the question of addiction, this isn't a few outsiders saying, oh, my addictive techniques are being used. This is some of the founders of Facebook coming forward and admitting and apologizing for deliberately using them. So this is not any kind of strange, exotic claim that I'm making or anything ambitious on that level. And the thing is, when you're addicted to something, whatever it is, by definition, you've lost a little bit of what we might call free will.
0: Okay. And what about the loss of empathy? Where does that come in?
2: The meaning of empathy has shifted in public discourse to mean something a little bit more like uh, sympathy or uh, camaraderie or something like that. And uh, what we hope is that in a more connected world, we'll appreciate each other's struggles more and be less likely to dehumanize each other. But the thing is that the existing bummer regime, if I can use that word, has had exactly the reverse effect. Instead, what's happened The uh, algorithms that are trying to zero in on which content will get a rise out of people in order to increase engagement, as a matter of course, find the most irritable and cranky and paranoid stuff, and that creates groups that are paranoid of each other. It introduces paranoid personalities to each other, and you tend to have the rise of uh, mean-spirited, racist, or bigoted groups instead of kind and open groups and the interesting thing about this rancor is that if it was only happening in one kind of situation it'd be harder to blame the bummer system but whenever bummer shows up there's an increase in this this phenomenon whether it's in the developed world or the developing world
0: now one of the things you say in your book is that social media doesn't want us to have economic dignity what do you mean by that
2: What I mean by that is that the companies that do the most data gathering, and Google comes to mind in particular, will say that the reason they need all this data from everybody is to build AIs. But then with the same breath, they say, oh, these AIs are getting incredibly capable. They'll be able to do your job. You're not going to be needed anymore. You're going to have to live on a basic income. But there's something screwy going on here, which I hope you can see immediately, which is they're saying, our AIs are going to put you out of work, but we need to steal your data in order to make that happen. So the thing is, we're saying you're going to be made useless, except we need your data. So the thing is, if we could get out of the bummer model and reconsider this, perhaps a better idea than putting everybody on basic income would be to simply pay them for the value of their data. Um, Paying people for their data actually does work out. There will be enough money. We can create a new society where people find dignity and get better and better at making valuable data of all kinds, whether it's to entertain each other or to run machine learning schemes.
0: If we could build a new social media system that avoids the problems you've been talking about, what would it look like?
2: Well, in some ways, it would look like the existing system in all the ways that we love, the ability to find new people with common interests and so forth. I I think that's all great. What I think would be different is we'd have an opportunity to pay and be paid. We'd have a guarantee that there was no other party paying to influence what we saw. It was purely based on either our intent or other people that we perhaps paid to optimize what we'd see, but the customer and the user would be unified. I think it would be a system that would not create the enormous incentives for fake people, fake content, manipulative stuff, algorithmic adaptation to manipulate, and all of these other things. It would not be perfect. There's no such thing as paradise. There's no such thing as utopia. But I think it wouldn't incentivize the worst people. I can tell you a very specific thing I want. Um, my wife's been battling cancer successfully in the last few years, and I want a social media ecosystem where it's possible to go online and meet other people, get information without being bombarded by fake people, bogus hucksters, and just a mountain of crap. There's so much fakeness and so much crap that it amounts to a medical denial of service attack. It's truly bad out there when you really have to deal with it. So the new system wouldn't be like that because the incentives wouldn't be there.
0: Is that what led you to delete your own accounts then, that sort of experience? Mm.
2: Okay. I got to say, uh, <laughs> I knew these companies from the start and I always, I have had this position for a long time and I never had accounts on Google or Facebook because I, I always felt that this was problematic. In the old days when I decided not to have accounts, it seemed very strange to my friends. And in fact, it created quite a bit of tension. Things have turned around absolutely in the last year or so where now I don't feel lonely at all. And in fact, I almost Feel as if I'm saying what everybody else is saying, which is really an extraordinary development.
0: Okay. Now, what would you say to a listener who's saying, okay, I, I appreciate your arguments. It does sound like I should be thinking seriously about deleting my accounts, but I'm worried about this fear of missing out. I won't be able to tell what's going on. I won't know what people are talking about when I meet them. What do you say to people who are worried about that?
2: Well, I'd like to say a couple of things about it. First, uh, I realize it's unrealistic to expect everybody to quit this thing. In fact, the most I can achieve is getting only a small number of people to quit. And I absolutely recognize that. And yet I think that's essential because there has to be some island of people who aren't caught up in this mind control scheme just in order to create a range of points of view in the society and some perspective. If everybody's caught up caught up in it. We can't think beyond it. And I should point out, I mean, within Silicon Valley, a lot of executives in these very companies don't let their kids use it. And (laughs) I mean, there are, you should imagine you're the child of a a Google executive, (laughs) if that's what it takes for you to get off. But the other thing I want to ask people to do, especially if they're young people, for the sake of society, at least see if you can be part of the island that is off it to, to just give us some perspective, some ability to have a conversation. But if you're young person for your own sake, just to know yourself, get off for a while so that you can see the world a different way. I know it's scary. I know it's hard. Any experiment when you're young that pushes the limits and Creates a new view of the world is going to be hard and difficult, and you might lose people in the process. This is one of those. This is like going trekking for half a year in Tibet or something. You should do it. You might have some losses. You'll probably have some gains, too. Brilliant. Jaron Lanier, thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much for being interested. I really appreciate it. That was
1: Jaron Lanier talking to Tom Standage. And so, what are your thoughts on deleting your social media accounts? Tell us on Twitter if you still have your social media account, at Economist Radio. And if you have deleted it or you prefer email, send them to radio at economist.com. Finally, animal behavior and the operating theater. An unlikely combination, some may think, but not Franz Duval. He's one of the world's leading experts on animal behavior, and he has turned his attention to surgical practices to demonstrate how insights from animal behavior might improve surgery. To learn more about his study, I'm joined in the studio with Kara Eisner, one of the Economist's science correspondents. Hello, Kara. Hello. We're really going to look at surgery and understand something from animal behavior.
3: Yes, surgical errors can be caused by two different things: technical error and more interpersonal error. And while most people would think that the technical error is more often at fault, actually 70 to 80% of the errors are thought to be caused by interpersonal reactions.
1: That's extraordinary. So how does studying animal behavior help us?
3: Well, humans are animals. So if we can figure out how animals react uh, using clues from what has been studied about animals, that could tell us something about how to make surgery safer.
1: And so they did. However, they chose Franz Deweil, who's an expert on animal behavior, to be a part of the study. What was his contribution?
3: He contributed his previous hypotheses, which included thoughts about hierarchies and gender roles. They studied 400 different health workers doing 200 different surgeries across eight specialties. And they were looking at the amount of conflict and the amount of cooperation that occurred and seeing what influenced this. Conflicts were likely to lead to things that could jeopardize a patient's safety, and cooperation was something that would lead to better outcomes.
1: And so what do we know about what works best?
3: What they found was that with teams where most of the people working in the surgery room were male— they had more cooperation when they were led by a female surgeon. Likewise, groups that were mostly female, they cooperated better when led by a male. So the thought is that different hierarchies influence the amount of cooperation that's going to occur.
1: This is so interesting. So why should it be the case that teams that work best have a leader of one gender and subordinates of another gender?
3: Basically, they know from animal behavior that... Same genders are likely to uh, be—they have more rivalries in between themselves, and they also sometimes cooperate better in between themselves. One does not have to negate the other. So you find within the same gender a lot of cooperation usually, but also a lot of conflict. They think that when you have these hierarchies that exist mainly within your own gender, you're going to be competing for status more. And so these kinds of things, these competitions might translate it into things like the operating theater. And this is partly why they believe they saw this effect, so that when you had mostly women, but they were led by a man, there was more cooperation. um, And the same occurred with the other gender.
1: So is the solution more women or is it more diversity of gender?
3: This study is suggesting that more diversity of gender would be better. The reason why it is then extrapolated to say more women would be good is because in surgery in particular, there tend to be more men.
1: But is the question really more intermixing of genders, or is it making sure that your team has a sort of leader of one gender and a rest of a team primarily another gender?
3: That's what the researchers found, that if the leader was a different gender than the majority of the team, there would be more cooperation. Yes.
1: How interesting. Interesting. Kiara, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, consider taking out a subscription to The Economist. Simply go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is... A band of chimpanzees who put out The Economist.
2: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from two black guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights.